This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Tuesday, September 29th. Today on the show, the American Library Association marked its annual Ban Books Week by releasing their list of the 100 most challenged books of the past decade yesterday. And three Canadian titles made the list. We'll talk about that. And scientists have discovered a new way of breaking down plastic that could revolutionize recycling. But first, yesterday I was talking about this story where an Australian nasal spray is going to start human trials soon. And this nasal spray looks very hopeful in the fight against COVID-19. It stimulates the innate immune system prior to infection, and it could be complementary to vaccine programs. Um, it, immediately, I thought, oh, we have to reach out to Dr. Gilly Regev again, who is with Sanitize. They are out of uh, BC, and they've developed their very own nasal spray. Originally, it was invented to help uh, fight the flu, but they pivoted because of coronavirus. And she joins the show now. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gilly. Good to have you on again. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, how is your nasal spray sanitized different uh, from the Australian nasal spray? I mean, they say they're stimulating the innate immune system. Maybe you can walk us through what sanitize does. So I, I can't talk to their technology, but I, I don't know exactly their technology. But I think that um, it's great that they're coming along with another nasal spray. I think this is what we need. Sanitize has a nasal spray that releases nitric oxide, which on top of doing a similar thing, nitric oxide in our body stimulates the innate immune system. So in some ways, similar, but nitric oxide also is an antiviral. So since the infection starts in the nasal passages, if you spray a liquid that has nitric oxide that acts as an antiviral, it will just kill the virus. So not on, on top of just being um, a prevention, if you, you won't get infected, but even if you got infected already, it will kill the virus. Yeah, you uh, mentioned when we last spoke, and that was at the end of April, believe it or not, that uh, your nasal spray turns airways into basically a hostile environment to COVID-19, which is fantastic because what your hope is, is that everybody could walk around with one of these sanitized nasal sprays in their pocket and use it when they think they may have come in contact with someone uh, who may have had COVID-19. So you're at a place where you don't see proper social distancing going on. You leave, you pull out your nasal spray, you sanitize yourself and hope for the best. Where are you at now with it? Exactly, exactly. We call it the hand sanitizer for the nose because whenever you would use a hand sanitizer, you use, you use a nasal spray to prevent the infection. So we did start the trial. We started it in BC, but there weren't really many infections in BC. So we moved to Quebec. We had four different sites open in Quebec and very quickly started enrolling. But we bumped into some uh, roadblocks. Um, in, in this study, in order to find early stage or volunteer test subjects, our trial must be conducted outside the hospital, unlike later stage treatment. 
where recruitment needs to happen rapidly as COVID, um, it's either COVID test centers, outbreak centers, or even universities, for example. So then follow-up needs to happen. Unfortunately, and despite using experienced teams at four different clinical sites in Quebec, our efforts to recruit volunteers have been stemmed at every turn. And, and this is really unfortunate because this needs to happen yesterday. We've had repeated attempts to engage public health officials and medical authorities that just failed uh, institutions with frontal workers and first responders have declined to inform their employees on existence of this trial. Testing centers do not allow us to even go in and stand there and let people know of the trial. So we're just really struggling with the recruitment into this trial. And this has been very frustrating. Why the roadblock? I mean, Health Canada already approved you for clinical trials. So you have the government's blessing. Why the roadblock from uh, health officials? Because uh, one of the things you're thinking you're looking at doing, and you and I have spoken before, so we're privy to you know knowing what your goal is. But you need to enlist people that work in high risk settings of COVID nineteen because the whole goal of of sanitize is if you feel like you have been, come in contact with it, then you spray sanitize to uh, sterilize your nose so that you don't you can uh, neutralize and kill the virus. So you need people in these high risk settings. What? Why the roadblock? That, that's a great question. <laughs> We're stumbling that as well. I, we've shown that this is a safe treatment. Nitric oxide is already an approved drug. We're delivering it here in a lower dose than what's allowed to treat babies that are born yesterday. So the, their safety is very strong here. Um, and the, the challenges is just getting to this population, getting people know about the, tr- the trial and, and wanting to come into the trial um, and getting the provincial government to help us in just putting the word out there that this trial exists, that people can join the trial and getting universities, for example, to allow their students to know about this. This is a really there, there are quite a lot of infections happening right now at universities care home facilities. Uh, And and the other thing is to let people know that if they did get infected or if they think they're infected or they have some symptoms, they can come to us. We can test them within 24 hours in the trial. They'll get an answer and they can join with a treatment that may help them get better very quickly. We believe that you can turn from positive to negative in just a few days. Hmm. Can you can, so this is not just a prophylactic. This could be a treatment for COVID as well. Can you pick up and leave Quebec? Could you do the total uh, phase two trial or phase three trials here in Ontario? So we are actually looking now to open a, a site in Ontario as well. And I'm hoping that within a week we can have another site in Ontario. We do have four sites ongoing in Quebec. And I know that the cases are unfortunately coming up again. So um, yes, I'm, I'm hoping that we can open another mm. site in Ontario. Uh, I, have you tried social media to get in contact with people? Because, I mean, it, it, not just traditional media. We, we talk, yeah. uh, you know, this is our second time talking. But if, if health officials are coming in, you know, if, if universities and organizations are kind of barring you at every turn, why not just do a blanket social media um, campaign? Well, that's a good question. They have We have sites that this is what they do. This is their profession. They know how to recruit. They've even been um, refused by Facebook to put an ad hmm. in there. 
So okay. we, we've tried in every single way, and, and we keep trying. We're not giving up. We keep trying. We will make sure that enough people are getting into this because the longer this trial takes, the longer it will take to get these drugs to the market. And people are dying in the meantime, and we can help. Dr. Gilly, I thank you for your time once again, and I wish you the best of luck with your trials. Thank you. If I may just say that if anyone is interested in going into the trial, you can go into our website, sanitize.com, and have all the data how to get in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to talk about something. Let's pivot away from coronavirus. Could we for a minute here? The American Library Association marked its annual Banned Books Week yesterday by releasing their list of 100 of the most challenged books of the past decade. And go figure, it wasn't like the Schitt's Creek at the Emmys where we swept the comedy awards, but three Canadian titles made this list. Here to talk about it, Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the American Library Association Office for Intellectual Freedom. Freedom, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Okay, so what's the criteria for this list of most challenged books of the past decade? Well, uh, ALA has a project where we uh, ask for reports of books that are challenged and banned in classrooms and libraries, as well as collecting media reports about book challenges in libraries and schools. And we compile this data into a database. And while we don't claim that it statistically, uh, 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 you know, uh, reaches a high level of data uh, thing, but it is a, a good anecdotal snapshot of trends in book censorship uh, in the United States and in North America. So uh, the, this list represents um, uh, all the challenges that we heard about, uh, collected reports about, between uh, 2000, uh, between 2010 and 2020. Uh, and so the, the books that are high on the list got the most challenges, and the ones that are lower in the list got the uh, uh, least amount of challenges. Three Canadian titles made the list. Sex is a Funny Word by Corey Silverberg and Fiona Smythe. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, and This One Summer by Mariko, uh, Mariko Tamaki and Jillian Tamaki. Um, let's talk about the fact that, that Canadians are on the list, and Margaret Atwood seems to be on the, ba- the band list quite frequently. Uh, two of these books are aimed at young readers. Is that, is that a, a commonality on a lot of the books on the band list or a lot of them aimed at younger readers? And is that why people, uh, you know, are so against them and challenge them so much? Well, that is uh, correct that the books that are most often challenged are books for young people written uh, for them uh, and provided to them. We very seldom see challenges to adult books aimed at an adult audience. And when we do see those challenges, it's often because they're included 
as offerings uh, in literature courses in uh, high schools here in the United States. And, for example, uh, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale um, got more attention this year uh, and ended up on the top ten most challenged list, in part because of the attention brought by the uh, television series, but also because it's uh, there was a greater number of schools, including it in the reading curriculum for 11th and 12th graders here in the United States. We read it in high school. It was on our curriculum. So, uh, you know, it's one of those those favorites that, that people um, tend to want to share with kids. And it's so relevant now. Um, any common any other common themes that that you can uh, assign to the books that are on the uh, most banned list? They're books that matter and books that people love. We very frequently, we don't often see challenges that books that don't matter. Um, and so, you know, we want to highlight the fact that despite the uh, fact that we have this uh, uh, stated allegiance to uh, free speech and here in the United States, the First Amendment, um, we, there's still censorship going on uh, at the local level that denies individuals the ability to read the books that they want and need. And we're particularly concerned about youth who belong to, who are youth of color or who belong to marginalized communities that are concerned in exploring their gender or sexual identity. They need to have access to many of these materials. Um, Corey Silverberg's book, for example, is uh, a much beloved resource among young people uh, to learn about uh, sexual health and sexual identity. Um, but that's one of the books that uh, is most often challenged because adults uh, believe that inherently young people shouldn't have the ability to read about that material. And we work every day to try to ensure that young people have access to the materials they need. The book you're talking about is Sex is a Funny Word, and it's actually a comic for kids age uh, 8 to 10, and it talks about your body and your gender and your sexuality, and it's it's a a book that, yeah, it's beloved and it's important. There's another series that also involves a a cartoon character, Captain Underpants by Dave Pilkey. Uh, How is it possible that that is the number two most challenged book in America right now? Um, apparently there are a large number of adults who don't appreciate the humor of, uh, six and seven year old boys. <laughs> uh, and they, but really it's the, um, pot, you know, it, it's the jokes in the book, uh, that depend on a little bit of potty humor that sometimes raise the ire of challengers. Um, but more importantly and more sobering is the fact that the book is often challenged because it encourages uh, young people to question authority and to think about what adults are doing to them in their lives, um, which is also a common theme in books that are challenged, that they challenge the status quo. They raise questions about adult authority. Um, For many years, the Harry Potter books that were challenged frequently in libraries and schools Yes, they were challenged because of uh, the depiction of witchcraft, but also a common theme, again, was here are young people questioning authority, uh, 
taking agency over their lives. And there's just a, a group of adults um, and many parents who take issue with that and, and don't want the, those ideas available to young people. One of the things that I think uh, these people that ban books are missing or challenge books are missing is is these books that they challenge are actually an entryway into a passion that is so important for kids, and that is reading. As if you can get them reading, you you're you know that's half the battle. Get them engaged, but you have to get them engaged in something that they are uh, interested in. Um, how? How much does politics come into this? Do specific books get challenged in red states and others in blue states? Do you have a breakdown of that? Um, What we're actually observing is a number of organized groups with agendas concerning uh, uh, opposing same-sex marriage, uh, rights for uh, um, trans persons, uh, things like that. They're now organizing to challenge the availability of books uh, addressing those issues in schools and libraries. And so I wouldn't say that it breaks down uh, among states or anything, but it does reflect uh, a particular group's political agenda. And, and so they have encouraged local chapters to challenge both books and programming in local libraries that offer um, uh, positive uh, depictions of LGBTQ life and um, that um, depict LGBTQ characters. Um, It's one of the greatest trends we've observed in the last few years. Um, If you look at our most challenged book list for the last decade, uh, the top ten includes a lot of books that um, were always uh, what we call frequent flyers on our list, Um, young adult books dealing with coming of age, John Green's books, uh, for example, Looking for Alaska. But we've seen a great shift now. And so this year, eight of the 10 books on our top 10 most challenged books for 2019 all deal with LGBTQ themes or contain LGBTQ characters. Um, our number one book, George, is a middle school novel uh, about a transgender girl. Um, and so uh, that's probably the most troubling uh, trend that we're seeing, because certainly there are children, young people, families that all want and need this information. And certainly the public library um, and the school library as well should include these books in the collection to, so that they can find their lives reflected in the institutions that are part of their lives. Back when I was a kid, Judy Bloom was uh, the big young adult uh, author, and it was books like Blubber and, uh, you know, Then Again, Maybe I Won't and Deanie, uh, things that that, um, caused you to even, um, they almost preempted the questions before you had them. And whether you related to to the main character or not, it allowed you as a kid to uh, understand some of the things that that main character might be going through. And, and build a little bit of empathy. How important is that for, for uh, kids and, and the literature that they pick up? It's absolutely vital. You know, I, I've been a reader all my life, and it was important to have books that explained the world to me or helped me think about what I was confronting in my life. And I know that there are many young people who find their entryway into reading by reading books like The Absolutely True Diary of Part-Time Indian, 
Um, I've actually talked to many um, adolescent boys who absolutely hated reading, but then they picked up the Absolutely True Diary and actually found a work of literature that reflected their experience in their lives and, and you know, uh, and they acquired a love of reading for those books. You know, it, it you know, uh, it's often said that a, a book never killed anyone. A book never really ever hurts everyone. All it does is expand minds and hearts. Um, and I think that while a parent certainly has a right to guide their own child uh, in uh, what they read, um, they, the you know, individual beliefs uh, about um, sexuality or religion. It shouldn't dictate what's available to other people who might need that information and or and you know prevent them from acquiring the love of reading we know that leads to a lifetime of fulfillment uh the emmy awards just occurred and i was talking about the emmy awards at the start of this conversation with you so i want to just bring it back to the emmy awards which it sounds odd to uh, bring it back here but during one of the the speeches it was a lifetime achievement award um it was there was a story about how everyone is building their own quilt and how uh you have to go ahead and build your own quilt and i think when i look at that list of banned books or books that are challenged i think that what they are is they're each representative of different quilts and different stories and if we don't hear other people's stories how can we possibly understand our own story Absolutely. Developing empathy, understanding the world, it just makes everyone um, uh, a better person to be able to do that. And books are certainly the vehicle for that uh, uh, today. You know, I, if I, I, if I can reach out and find a book that allows me to explore the, and stand in the shoes uh, of another person whose life is completely different from mine, um, I, I then it allows me to better um, understand the world and understand myself and understand the lives of other people. Um, and I can't agree more that, um, you know, books are, uh, you know, are such wonderful things um, and that they should, uh, you know, we can only, should only encourage young people to read as broadly and as widely as they can. We got a lot of time during this pandemic to sit down with a, a good book. If you're looking for the uh, list of 100 most challenged books of the past decade, do we go to the American Library Association webpage? Absolutely. Actually, you can go to ala.org forward slash bbooks, and that will take you to the portal of our lists and information about Banned Books Week, where it's all about celebrating our freedom to read, our free, uh, intellectual freedom, uh, and um, and, you know, you can get the book lists and learn about activities to observe Banned Books Week and to promote um, uh, books and, the, uh, and our freedom to choose them. Deborah, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been really a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you for having me on, Kelly. It's been a great uh, time, and I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Our government still wants to get rid of uh, single-use plastics in the near future, and I am completely behind that. I'm so sick of going up to the cottage, uh, walking along the shorelines of Lake Huron and picking up plastic that I think, wow, if I'm not uh, doing something positive with this, this is going to continue to end up uh, breaking down and breaking down. We've got a real problem with uh, 
microplastics, not only in the ocean, but in the Great Lakes. And so this story is a really positive story. It's about a super enzyme, a super enzyme that degrades plastic bottles uh, six times faster. And it's been created by scientists that, and it could be used, of course, for recycling within a year or two. That's great news. Dr. Erica Erickson is a researcher at the National Renewable Energy Lab, one of the first authors of the research. She joins the show now. Dr. Erickson, it's, it's a pleasure to talk with you. It's great to be here. Thanks. What's a super enzyme? Um, so in this case, we're looking at a natural enzyme, actually, and comparing it to um a version that we've actually changed in a small way. Um, and it, it's about six times better than the, the original version at degrading um, PET from plastic bottles. Uh, so it's super because it's doing a really cool thing. Um, and it just happens to be better than, than the natural version. This was derived from bacteria that naturally evolved the ability to eat plastic. How do we discover this ba- bacteria? Yeah, so um, this bacteria was identified in a recycling facility in Japan and published in 2016. So it's kind of incredible if you think about how short a time plastic has been in the environment. Uh, so invented in the 1940s, essentially. Um, and when you think about uh, natural systems that degrade other things in the environment, they've had a much longer time to become efficient at that and do that. And so the fact that we found an, a bacteria that does this to use plastic as its sole carbon and energy source is really impressive from an evolutionary perspective. And so um, using the enzymes, the little biological machines within that organism, we can start to understand how that works to, to apply that to a more global solution, I guess. How long does it take the enzyme to break down the plastic? Uh, so... In this case, um, we look at experiments that take place over about 96 hours, so four days, and that results in not that much breakdown, to be honest. It's still under 10% of the, the total amount of plastic that's provided to the enzyme. Um, and so that's something that we're still working on a lot is to, to optimize this to become a truly industrially relevant um, tool. Okay, maybe I'll, uh, this might very this might sound very simple to you because you're a scientist. But usually when you process something, it, it creates something else or changes uh, the state of, of whatever you're processing to something else. What's the, what's, what is the, um, the waste material that results in breaking down this plastic? Is there any? Yes. Yes. So it breaks it back down into the, the single components that were used to make the plastic. And so uh, one thing that you could do with that is you go back to the starting materials and you could remake the, the plastic again. Um, and that's why we're really interested in this as a way to recycle, to true, ah. true recycle. Instead of turning it back into something totally different, it, beca- it could become PET again. But this time, instead of going back to our oil reserve to make that plastic, we could regenerate a fresh batch. Right. So you're not using broken down plastic to uh, just, you know, m- recycled plastic to make something different. You're using it to make what you originally had. That's incredible. So uh, you've been working on engineered uh, plastic eating enzymes for two years. You've got this super enzyme. There are other applications that you can use this enzyme for because I, I understand that it also uh, works pretty great when it comes to breaking down cotton. And recently I had a scientist on who said they were find, finding uh, denim fibers in the Arctic 
from our genes that I guess escape through wastewater and make their way uh, because they're so tiny through evaporation all the way up to the Arctic, you could also break down uh, something like uh, clothing, correct? Yeah, so this enzyme wouldn't do a breakdown of cotton, but another really well-studied enzyme could. And so just the, like this study is about teamwork between multiple enzymes to do a better job. Um, you can imagine that there could be other enzymatic teams that could could work on textiles, which is a huge waste problem right now. Um, there's not a really good sustainable way to take used clothing and generate new clothing from that or some new product that is of equal value. How amazing is it that we're looking back at nature to find the solutions for the problems that we've created that actually are affecting nature in such a negative way? Um, I mean, I think that we should be looking to nature for a lot more inspiration um, for how things should work. We've had a lot longer to think about this than we have. Um, and so I think, uh, I think it's really, a, it's a great thing that we can use that as a resource to inspire new creative opportunities for applying the technology that we're good at making to environmental concerns. One of the uh, uh, interesting points of, uh, I guess, the, the, the key points of your super enzyme is that it works at room temperature. Can you tell us how that actually could be extremely helpful when it comes to commercial use? Yeah, so so there's um, this this organism that was discovered in Japan is a uh, it grows at more of like room temperature, um, and this this would mean that there's less cost in heating a facility, for example, and keeping a high temperature process going. Uh, whereas there are also some really promising other plastic degrading enzymes that have been discovered that work at a slightly higher temperature, um, and so there those those could both be really viable options towards finding a biological method for recycling PET. Uh, in this case, there might be a cheaper way to, to keep the facility running, though. How long till we start actually using this, you know, in, in the real world? Um, well, we, we hope in the next few years that this could be become a really viable option. Um, it's not going to be ready tomorrow, uh, but there, there are some, actually some companies that have been putting a ton of re- work into this, and they're very close. And so um, I, I hope in the next few years we, we have a really good method for making this happen in real life. Me too. It's, it's a great news story, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Dr. Erickson, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Have a great day. You as well. Dr. Erica Erickson is uh, the researcher at the National Renewable Energy Lab working with that super enzyme that degrades plastic bottles six times faster than before so that they can use it, the elements, to recreate a new plastic bottle. It's amazing. It's, it's truly recycling. Well, that's it for the podcast today. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, we broadcast live daily, Monday through Friday, from 9 till noon on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Have a great afternoon.